הגיע הזמן להפסיק את הטרלול הגמור שבתוכו אנחנו חיים. תהיה לנו ממשלה שתוכלו לקום בבוקר ולהגיד לעצמכם, בואנה, שבועיים לא חשבתי על הממשלה. היא לא גרה לי בסלון, היא לא משגעת אותי, היא לא עושה לי רעש כל הזמן, היא סתם עובדת בשבילי, כי זה תפקידה. It's Election Overdose number 11, recorded on March the 11th, 2021. Which means that when you hear this episode over the weekend, there are only 10 days left until E-Day. I'm Anshul Pfeffer, and if like me, you've been hoping for some kind of enlightenment from the polls, any indication of where Israel's heading, you'll be as clueless as ever. And because the polls are barely budging, and the main conclusion from them is yet more deadlock. And growing prospects for, dare we say it, A fifth election in a few months. Personally, I blame my co-host Dalia Scheindlin. That should be Dr. Dalia Scheindlin, who, as our resident pollster, is going to have to carry the can for her colleagues. What do you have to say in your defense, Dalia? Well, I may be a doctor, but I can't heal the problem of polls, nor can I heal the problem of people who don't like the polls because they are messengers for the people. And I want to just remind people that polls are not just dry numbers. They're the voice of people who have been remarkably committed to their general political positions for the last three elections. So in this case, people are more principled than the political elites. The blocks are stuck. And when I say blocks, I mean the parties that plan to go into a coalition with Netanyahu and those who are committed to going into a coalition without Netanyahu. And we're seeing the exact same breakdown as we saw in the previous elections, about 58 seats for Netanyahu. He's still not crossing or even reaching 60 or 61 seats, even though... Arie Derry, I heard, is completely convinced that the Netanyahu bloc is going to cross 61, but he has to conjure up some magical 100,000 votes to do that. Likud appeared to dip a little bit into the mid-upper 20 range, 27 or so seats, but that was last week. This week, the average seems to have stabilized at around 28 seats. There's interesting kind of jockeying going on on the right. In five of the last seven polls, Naftali Bennett's Yamina party has tied or even surpassed New Hope, Gidon Saar's party. And that one, which was the great white hope of the anti-Bibi right, is drifting down now to the 10-seat range. And that reminds me very much of the last party to break away from Likud, which was Kulanu. And we had Rochel Azaria on last week, who was a representative of Kulanu. They also got 10 seats in their first cycle, but then quickly petered out. Uh, I think I should say also for the pollsters that this is really, as Israeli elections go, one of the most difficult ones to predict for so many reasons. An unprecedented pandemic election, what kind of turnout will we have? Will people stay at home for fear of infection? Or perhaps because there are more Israelis physically in the country, because much less Israelis are traveling now. Maybe that will also affect uh, turnouts. One thing that your esteemed colleagues can't predict. And we've seen in the space of the last 12 months, so many parties break up. And two of the last three biggest parties, uh, Blue and White, has been decimated, gone down from 30-something seats to perhaps four or five or even lower. And jointly, the third largest party is down from 15 in the polls now to nine. So, so many changes. A polling nightmare, isn't it? It's a, it's a polling nightmare, but it, more than it's a polling nightmare, it's a nightmare in terms of the question that I get about five times a day, which is, will there be a fifth election? Because that doesn't only depend on the voters. Again, the voters have been breaking down their votes pretty in a pretty even way, in a pretty uh, consistent way. The one thing I think is interesting is that there is a bit of a disconnect this time between people voting in reflection of their ideology 
and how they perceive parties that reflect that ideology, which in all of the last three elections, there was a pretty clear consistency between the percentage of Israelis who identify as right wing, which is about 50 or 52 percent of the electorate, and those who identify as either centrist plus left wing, which is in the lower 40 percent range and the rest just don't know. And if you add the percentages up for those parties, the results were very close to that breakdown. But now we're seeing that the parties of the ideological right are getting 78 to 80 seats, which is well above the percentage of right-wingers. So what's interesting is that there is this disconnect. There's more people voting for right-wing parties, but they're breaking themselves down apparently primarily on this strategic question of which coalition they prefer with BB or without BB. I'd like to ask you an insider question because one of the things that's striking me in the media polls is how similar they are to each other. We've got five or six different polling companies working for, for Israeli media. They're all saying very much the same. Well, There's that's no a mav- good thing. That means we're actually a well, science. Um, no, in the, in, the experiment is repeatable. It's true, but in past campaigns, there, there were often maverick companies who had uh, more varying predictions. I think you might be referring to exit polls. I mean, I think that generally towards well, know, the end of a campaign... Danny, I know the difference. I know you know the difference, but our listeners might not know the difference. The difference is that, you know, oftentimes the lasting impression during a campaign is what happens during the exit polls, which are you know, these kind of realistic requests for the voters to repeat their vote right outside the ballot station. I know you know the difference, but let me explain that polling ahead of the election is simply representative samples of the general public or hopefully the voting public. And I think that the polling companies don't tend to be that different. The question is which one picks up on any sort of last stage trends. And of course, what happens now over these last 10 days is much more predictive of the actual results than anything we've seen up until now. It's natural. I mean, it seems self-explanatory, but we forget that what the polls said a month ago is much less relevant than what the polls will say a week before the election. And even sometimes we've seen late hour, 11th hour shifts few days before the election. But what people tend to remember is the exit polls. And those are very tricky. And so that's where you see oftentimes major differences, major being three or four seats in one direction or the other, which of course tilts the entire coalition building process. And oftentimes people remember that and blame the pre-election polls. But I think that the fact that the polls are pretty consistent is because the electorate has been pretty consistent. Well, we've still got two episodes to go before the election, our regular Thursday Friday episode next week and a special episode that we'll be recording 24 hours before the election on election week. We'll talk a lot more about polls in those next two episodes. However, a standstill in the polls doesn't mean other stuff hasn't been happening this week with Israel almost fully emerged from the coronavirus lockdown. Coronavirus is still here, but thankfully uh, starting to recede. Campaigning finally began this week in earnest. I've been working on a big report myself for Haaretz, which should come out this weekend, uh, dissecting Netanyahu's own personal campaign. So I've spent a lot of hours over recent nights watching Netanyahu footage. I may, I may have missed some other stuff about going on in the other parties. What have you noticed earlier? Well, let me tell you about the thing. The one that I think is quite prominent is Yesha Tid, because Yesha Tid, which I didn't mention it before, has really stabilized at 19 or 20 seats. Uh, the party that's coming closest to challenging Likud. And it's interesting because Yair Lapid himself has not been that prominent in terms of personal interviews right now in the media, but they have a very consistent sort of branding in their ads and their campaign ads, which began this week, all talk about this kind of all roads lead to this one word that they repeat over and over again, sanity. It must have tested well in the focus groups. It has, and I've, I've heard from some very senior in Yeshatid that this was one of Mark Melman's uh, Lapid's 
polling guru in Washington. This was one of his main points. Talk about sanity. Talk People about sanity. want sanity. And not only do they talk about sanity, but at every possible chance, whether it's on bumper stickers or in their actual campaign ads, they have this beautiful image of a rising sun or uh, a kind of orange dot, which reminds me very much of a meditation app that's out there called and Headspace. Interesting and I wonder if they did that purposely to make us feel very calm. But the first time you saw that, at least I've, I felt, what's this? It's very weird. I think a lot of people said, what but is then that? It grow, but then it starts to grow on you. And you suddenly start to identify this like calming, like you said a bit of a yoga app kind of thing with Lapid. And it's it does seem to be working. It grows on you. It makes you feel calm and Like Dorothy sane. in the field of poppies and Wizard of Oz. Is that it? Let's hope so. I mean, it's, you know, we don't usually see voters going to vote on a platform of feeling calm. But in this particular situation, who knows? He's doing well in the polls, and that says something. He's especially steady. It's a steady, slow, but relentlessly upwards trajectory. And, that, right. and that's something which I think is was planned and thought out in advance. I, I'm sure it was planned and thought out. What's more impressive is that it succeeded. And it, who knows if he hasn't, you know, in these last 10 days, if he continues to go up, he, you know, will be much better positioned to claim... Uh, the mantle to form the next government, even if there are many parties conspiring. I don't he doesn't want him. to go up too fast or too far because he doesn't want to push down his rivals. He wants his rivals to be small, but he wants them to still exist because his rivals will still be part of a potential anti-Nintonial coalition. I think so. Should we talk about some of the other campaigns that are out go there? Because it. I think they're interesting. I mean, uh, Labour's campaign with Mirab Mikhaeli took an interesting perspective in their ads, which is very much focused on gender equality. And I think that's sort of a safe strategic bet. It's going with her strength. People know her best historically for her kind of avant-garde work on gender equality and feminist issues. And so it was interesting that that was the general framing of the ads. But of course, they managed to take digs at Netanyahu and mock him for mocking the Israeli public. Uh, on the right, I was struck by the fact that Gidon Saar's ads, after he was supposed to be the great innovation of this election, they really remind me of the ads from my first campaign 22 years ago in 1999. He, you know, His ads are talking about the devastation in business, for example. 90,000 businesses have shut down, mocking Likud for complacency. That sounds a lot like our 1999 slogan, which said, if 300,000 people have lost their job, their jobs. Why should Netanyahu keep his? And that was a campaign for Ehud Barak and the Labor Party. So I wonder if there's something a little bit antiquated about his creative campaign. I thought something else. I thought perhaps behind the scenes, the main campaigns facing Netanyahu are sort of dividing the roles. Who's going to be more aggressive? Who's going to attack him on a specific front? And who's going to be sort of like detached and serene like Yair Lapid? It may just be wishful thinking, hoping that the, that block is is well coordinated. But it does seem like they've each chosen a different. It's not. Tap. I mean, never underestimate the capacity for collusion among campaign consultants. Ah, so you're saying it's not the politicians; it's the it's the hired help. It's them too. But I think one of the other interesting things is that apropos these ads, people who are of of a certain age will remember that traditionally, when the ad phase and Israel has a, a two week block in which the television uh, uh, stations have to set aside time for election campaign ads, and we're not supposed to have them on tele television before that. But that used to be a great big national event, and everybody would watch them, of course, even more so in the early days when there was only one television channel. But now, I, it's really actually so not an event. I mean, there's almost it's no right. discussion. It's, it's a non-event. Yeah. And yet, I'm sure the campaigns, just from my experience, are still investing money and time in producing those ads. Maybe they're not as good quality as they once were, but they're really kind of an anachronism. 
Well, uh, I still think that the ads, whether they're on online or on old school television, are hugely important. And one interesting thing is that even United Torah Judaism, who in the past invested much less in ads, perhaps as a result of the fact that many more of their ultra-orthodox voters went online this year due to the coronavirus and need to have uh, have online information, have also been investing more than usual in ads, especially ads, and some of them are openly uh, produced by UTJ, and some of them seem to be produced by UTJ but are anonymous, especially as designed to try and keep their voters from defecting to the neo-Kohanist homophobic and that supremacist me, religious Zionism. That brings me to another point, which is that Naftali Bennett's ads are almost exclusively focused on calling on Likud voters to leave. It's what we call testimonials of people who look like regular citizens. Of course, they're probably all people working on the campaign or something saying, you know, I voted Likud my whole life. My family voted Likud, but they didn't come through. It's time to vote for Naftali Bennett. So it's the ads are very much focused on these strategic calculations and trying to get voters to defect and all sorts of approaches that have little to do with actual issues. So as I mentioned uh, a couple of minutes ago, I have been spending my nights this week watching Netanyahu footage. And Netanyahu has been producing a lot of it, both in three or four events daily, mostly in the evenings, ever since the lockdown was eased at the end of last week. And whenever he's in the car, Topaz Luke, his new media director and producer, opens up, you know, takes out whatever, a smartphone or whatever he's using, and starts recording a 30 or 40 minute Q&A session. Topaz Luke, who also happens to do a great imitation of Netanyahu. Hello. Hello. Not just of Netanyahu. Part of the show is Topaz Luke making off-camera imitations of Lapid, of famous Israeli journalists, mainly Amnon Abramovich. But the, the, but the real thing that comes through from the, all these Netanyahu events, whether they're rallies, all these impromptu question and Q&A sessions in the car, is that it's all about Lapid. Now, there's a strategy here. Netanyahu wants to build up Lapid. He thinks that Lapid is someone who is off-putting to many voters. There is some data that suggests that, though I think that's beginning to change already. And he wants to sort of convince right-wingers who are thinking of voting for Bennett or for Sao to come back home because Bennett and Sao, as he says, could collaborate with Lapid. But I think it's also reflecting a certain change in the reading of the map. And this is Lapid's moment and Netanyahu, part from strategy, but part from sensing the fact that he's, that Lapid, after nine years in politics, has finally become a real challenger. And what you see in these rallies are 25, 30-minute long speeches, classic Netanyahu, well-constructed with all the quotes and jokes and quips, but it's all based around Yair Lapid, and that, that really surprised me. I, I didn't think Netanyahu would take Lapid that seriously. He has spent a lot of time building this stump speech, and it's all based around Yair Lapid. That's really, I, I thought that was quite surprising. Well, it doesn't surprise me at all, because Netanyahu, in classic populist fashion, always finds a binary division within society. It's either Jews against Arabs, which is a classic for him, or uh, against the far left. And in this case, what he's basically saying is Yair Lapid is left He's the enemy. If you vote for Bennett or Saar, you're voting for Lapid. And that doesn't surprise me at all. It's part of Netanyahu's stalwart negative campaign that appears in every uh, election, complemented by some sort of positive campaign that he tries to present as some great, you know, a, a series of achievements. And in this case, they are twofold. And it's no surprise. It's the vaccines and it's his foreign policy. Let's talk about his foreign policy. But before that, 
I tell you why I think it is surprising, and Netanyahu has always been very, very dismissive of Lapid for some good reasons. Lapid's CV is what it is, and Netanyahu's CV is, I think, more impressive. You don't have. He's been to. around in politics longer, and I think for Netanyahu to suddenly take Lapid ser- seriously as a can- as a challenger is not an. It wasn't an easy transition for Netanyahu to make. He needs I an agree. enemy. He needs an enemy. But Gideon Sa would have been a more classic enemy. But Netanyahu's foreign policy was supposed to be this week another centerpiece of his campaign. As we're recording this, it seems Netanyahu will not be flying today to uh, to Abu Dhabi to meet Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed. But this was something that he really wanted to do. He's been trying to scale this meeting for so long. There are different reasons and excuses going around why this probably will not happen today. But let's say it had happened, or maybe Netanyahu can somehow make it happen at the beginning of next week. Would it have had any impact, do you think? It's interesting because even though it didn't happen, we're all talking about what if, which is exactly what Netanyahu wants. He wants to project to the Israeli public, again, leveraging his strong points, just like I said about Meirav Michaeli. He knows that his strongest positive appeal to the voters is his image as the country's greatest statesman. He's seen as the most... A capable person in foreign policy, represents Israel in the world, opens up new relations with different countries. And people do see him that way. But everybody's factored that into account already. Everybody knows about the Abraham Accords, even if they don't know all the details. I think many Israelis, from what I'm hearing when I talk to people uh, on different sides of the political map, see it as sort of a luxury, nice to have, but not something that really changes their lives. Those who are against Netanyahu just see it as a political ploy. Those who are for him think... Okay, cool, you know, but we knew he was the best foreign affairs leader anyway. So I think that this would have just been, you know, chalked up in the Israeli mind to another one of his great big splashy foreign policy achievements that they know already. And I don't think it would have changed mine. But there's one section of the electorate which hasn't voted for Netanyahu in the past and would have until very recently been seen as, as totally lost and foreign to him, where I think that Netanyahu hopes that photo opportunity with a crown prince in a major Arab country could have helped him, and that's the Arab-Israeli vote, where I think that Netanyahu thinks that he can still gain some more votes. And in his appearances in front of Arab-Israeli audiences, he always he's always bigging up the Abraham Accord. So I think this is a stunt that he thinks can work there. Well, it's a very interesting question, because I think that the Arab-Palestinian citizens in Israel are... You know, there, it's a dilemma for them about whether this is a great thing or whether this is a cynical thing, because they also know that Netanyahu made these agreements in order to basically sideline the Palestinians. They don't like the fact that it might contribute to you know, further marginalization of the Israeli-Palestinian question. On the other hand, I think that there are changes and dilemmas in the way they view these things. And I'm sure that there are some people who are very supportive of the agreements uh, because they see it as something that can bring Israel closer to the Arab world and maybe open up a different perspective on Arab culture. Although we've seen criticism as well in the sense of why didn't you why didn't you like us before, right? That video that went around of people from uh, the Triangle coming to Tel Aviv dressed up like Gulfies saying, here we are, we're right here already. Uh, and there's other interesting dilemmas going on. Yeah, so this week was also had its, a minor scandal to do with the Arab-Israeli vote. What was that about? Well, I, I think it's maybe minor for this week, but it's a longer term issue, which is that uh, Ahmed Tibi, who is one of the most prominent people on the joint list, was filmed giving an interview uh, in Arabic saying that he would not support legislation to advance LGBT rights. And that created certainly a stir, uh, I think, in well, in general. And it reflects a deepening dilemma, I would say, within the Arab Israeli community, but also among 
you know, those very few left-wing liberal Jews who had voted for joint list in the past, but, you know, f- would feel very alienated by an anti-LGBT stance. And in addition to that, number four on the merits list, who is a very prominent woman named Jida Rinawi Zuabi, also said that she would abstain on a law if there was a law to prohibit conversion ther- therapy in, for LGBTs. In other words, sort of distancing herself a little bit from potential future laws designed to protect LGBT rights. It's one thing for joint list where people sort of understand that there is a divided and partly conservative constituency, but it was a little tougher for somebody on merits to be saying that. And I think it just reveals how this issue is creating a clash of more conservative societies versus more progressive societies. This was the case in pretty much every society where, you know, uh, LGBT rights became more and more prominent and accepted. And we're seeing it playing out now in the Arab Israeli community as well. It could also be that they are competing with Mansour Abbas, who represents the Islamic movement in Israel, and he has been running on a platform that he represents conservative society. And so it could be part of the internal competition as well. Anshul, what do you think? Well, I think it tells us a lot about Meretz's problem, not just about the Arab-Israeli society. Meretz so close to the threshold in some of the polls, beneath the threshold, and having to tie itself in knots like a contortionist and appeal to its core, a constituency for whom LGBT rights are a huge thing, while trying to find some votes from the, those who in the Arab-Israeli sector were disappointed with the joint list. This kind of double messaging coming through is the kind of thing that happens when you try and work with too many different constituencies which perhaps don't really work that well together. We should also say that this is immediately seized upon by the secular right-wing parties to attack uh, the homophobia in the Arab political community, in the Arab, among the Arab political elites, and you know, saying that it's, it's terribly hypocritical of Jews to support them because, uh, you know, the left-wing Jews are supposed to be liberal, but of course they only notice these kinds of things when it's in their interest to do so. Still, it's hypocrisy. But uh, while we spend election overdose agonizing over what Israelis are thinking and what they'll be voting on March 23rd, there's a whole population living under various degrees of Israeli control and military occupation who won't be asked what they think on March 23rd. Whatever the outcome, however, it will affect nearly every area of their lives. What are 5 million Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza and East Jerusalem thinking? Do they care about Israel's election and what they expect of their own politicians right now? For that, we have the best possible person to answer, Khalil Shikaki. Khalil Shkaki is a professor of political science and director of the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, regarded by everybody who knows what's good as the best source for polling of Palestinian public uh, opinion. Since 2005, he's been a senior fellow at the Crown Center for Middle East Studies at Brandeis University. He received his PhD in political science from Columbia University in 1985. And from 1996 to 1999, he served as Dean of Scientific Research at Al-Najah University in Nablus. And in the past, he was a visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C. Since 1993, Dr. Shikaki has conducted over 200 polls among Palestinians in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. And since 2000, dozens of joint polls of Palestinians and Israelis together. And some of those polls were carried out by our very own Dr. Dalia Shendlin. Dr. Shkake, I'd like to start by asking, according to your polling, how interested are Palestinians right now in the Israeli election? And has that interest waned somewhat over the series of the last four consecutive elections? Israeli elections are absolutely critical for the Palestinians, but right now they are absolutely 
looking elsewhere. They definitely are not showing a great deal of interest because they think the results will be the same as last time. They do not expect to see anything new emerging. Certainly, they understand fully that Israeli elections are fundamental to their well-being or the opposite. Do they think there's any difference in how Palestinians live their situation based on which party is in power in Israel? Or do they think all Israeli governments are basically the same in terms of their impact on Palestinian life? You need to distinguish between what most Palestinians think and what the elite thinks. Most Palestinians think that it doesn't really matter who the prime minister is or the coalition is, uh, that essentially Israelis are unwilling to allow Palestinians freedom and independence uh, and to have their own state. Most Palestinians, therefore, see labor the same as Likud. That is most Palestinians, not all Palestinians. Uh, The elite sees significant differences. A right-wing government uh, entirely of the Likud and extremist uh, right-wing and religious groups would be seen as an invitation to confrontation. One that has uh, right-wing and center might be one that is sort of a confrontation avoidance kind of environment. One in which there is uh, a center that maybe some left, along with right, uh, would be one that could do some damage limitations in Israeli-Palestinian relations. What does that mean, damage limitations, in the perspective of those elite? What would they imagine? What what does it mean to them? This would allow some limits on settlement construction, for example. The issue of settlements is the most fundamental for Palestinians because it means the difference between a two-state solution or some other solution. So if left and center and right are working together, this would not stop the damage, but it would limit it. This would mean that major settlement expansion would not take place. That is the expectation. Again, this is, and this is the elite. This is not the public at large. Still, there is a a fourth option, by the way, which is one for engagement. And at this point, I think the elite does not think engagement is feasible with the right. I think the conclusion from previous experiences with Netanyahu is that doesn't work, that it, it, you need center and left to work together in Israel to allow for such engagement. So the, for the elite, of course, it makes a lot of difference who, what, what coalition Israel uh, has at any given moment. So one of the more unique features of this election campaign is Netanyahu also uh, trying to uh, appeal to Arab Israeli, to Palestinian Israeli voters. And he he himself isn't speaking in Arabic, but uh, quite a lot of the Likud campaign material has been translated. And there's Netanyahu rhapsodizes about his uh, meetings with young Arab Israelis and how they call him Abu Yair. So has any of this uh, registered across the Green Line in the territories? Of course not. Um, most Palestinians think that Netanyahu um, is pure evil, that, that he is going to uh, annex the West Bank, and, and as soon as he can, he, he will be able to, he will uh, do that, that he is basically catering uh, to the interest of, of the right wing and extreme right wing in Israel, that whatever he is currently doing with in terms of statements to Israeli Arabs uh, are are simply uh, a gimmick to get some of them uh, to vote for parties that are friendly to him among uh, Israeli Arabs. 
uh, or to n- not to vote to, to the joint list. What portion of Palestinians believe that Israel actually controls their lives? And what do they think the Israeli government actually wants to do uh, regarding the West Bank and Gaza? Well, actually, we just completed a new survey that we have done jointly with B'Tselem, in which we asked them when about... you say we, I'm just going to stop you and say we, you mean you and me. <laughs> you and me. Yes. Really? <laughs> yes, really. Indeed, indeed. Okay, it's true. I asked uh, that question on purpose, but I, I do want to hear this data. Well, the, the data clearly shows that for the overwhelming majority of Palestinians, when it comes to the West Bank, uh, the perception is Israel is in control. Uh, only 5% in the survey said the PA is in control. Uh, when it comes to Gaza, we had a larger percentage that said Hamas was in control, but that was just 19%. The rest said it's either entirely Israel's control or perhaps uh, a little bit uh, in the, West, the case of the West Bank, I think it was about 30%. We said that this was uh, a joint control. And even when we asked about things like education and health and, and roads and water, electricity, travel, pray, so on, the largest percentage, about half, said Israel was in control of all of this. More than a quarter said this is done jointly. Only 11% said that the PA is in control. So for the overwhelming majority of the Palestinians, Israel is essentially here. And it controls most things for Palestinians. And their PA is is just perhaps a, a grand municipality of sorts. That is how Palestinians feel. And they think that what Israel wants is not a two-state solution. Uh, the overwhelming majority thinks Israel is either interested in annexation, which is close to 60%, or another quarter or so would say what Israel wants is permanent military occupation. So for most Palestinians, uh, Israel is in control, remains in control, and will always be in control if it is up to Israel to decide. So... An election period is always a time when a lot of research is done about public opinions, not just about voting intentions. And here's the, this is the point to mention that the Palestinians may be holding elections, at least they're scheduled to be held in three months from now. So On May 22nd. That's the parliamentary one and the presidential on what date? End of July. End of July, thank you. So there's a lot of polling being carried out. What are we learning? What are you pollsters? Dalia, you're welcome to answer this question as well. What are you learning about the different attitudes between the two big Palestinian communities, the one living in the West Bank and to some extent also Gaza, and the Palestinians of 1948, the Arab-Israeli Palestinians? And let's not forget East Jerusalem Palestinians. East Jerusalem as well. Uh, East Jerusalem Palestinians will vote only in the Palestinian elections if Israel allows them to vote in East Jerusalem They certainly can vote uh, anywhere else in the West Bank if they want to. Um, As usual, we do not expect a large turnout from East Jerusalemites, but we do expect a large turnout in in Gaza and in the West Bank. In terms of registration, we have seen huge uh, turnout, people wanting to register. Uh, These are new voters who have not voted in the past, so close to half a million or so have, have have registered to vote. This means uh, all of those are young, or most of them are young people. Um, For Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza, voting, this is going to be meaningful because it means reunifying. The expectation is that this will be a a reunification of the West Bank and Gaza, that this would mean a legitimate political system 
one that has accountability with a parliament is, is functioning, where uh, 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 there is oversight and, and that perhaps this would restore some level of independence to the judiciary, give civil society greater say and so on. So these elections for those Palestinians in West Bank and Gaza are going to be huge. Beyond the voting intentions, what are we seeing different attitudes between the two main groups of Palestinians, those living in Israel and having, who have also Israeli citizenship and will be voting in this election, and those who will be voting in the other election in May and July? I mean, are we seeing more divergence between these two groups in, in their views and, and their voting patterns? There are, of course. I mean, there are similarities. Uh, all of them uh, share the view that a two-state solution to the conflict is preferable to other alternatives. It doesn't mean that the, the, the majority is opposed to other alternatives. We see differences, for example, regarding the one-state solution. Those who were voting in the Israeli elections uh, support the, this idea of a one-state solution a lot more than, and perhaps even twice as much, as those who live in the West Bank and Gaza, who want separation, independence, sovereignty of their own. Uh, unlike Israeli Arabs who want equality and rights and so on. Uh, these are certainly major differences between them. Um, the, the Israeli Arabs are voting essentially to have a say in the way they are governed. They are trying to protect their status and in particular given the nation-state law that is certainly a major threat to them. The nation-state law, for example, isn't something that Palestinians are looking at because at this point, they're not thinking about equality. We still don't see movement toward the one-state solution that is popular in base, where these ideas, equality um, versus sovereignty and independence, are being debated. There is no such debate. But I want to ask you about this. I mean, you say there is no such debate now. However, we hear a lot about the death of a two-state solution. We know that there's declining support among both Israelis and Palestinians for the two-state solution a majority of Palestinians who don't believe it's feasible anymore. And alongside that, very high criticism in your surveys, very high negative attitudes among Palestinians towards the PA, including towards President Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen. And alongside that, at least in some of the activist communities, there's the rise of uh, an approach that says, forget about this whole state project, just give us rights, human rights and civil rights. And to that end, maybe there's not a debate about a one-state solution, but do you think that if Palestinians could, they would vote in a single unified state if that should come to pass? I mean, considering that Israel, you know, we don't have a two-state solution now. That's a very good question. If we ask Israeli Arabs, would you like to vote in the Palestinian elections? My guess is very few Israeli Arabs would say yes. Really? But why do you think that is? Because they would fear that this would be one way to deprive them of Israeli mm -hmm. citizenship. Mm -hmm that basically Israel would be uh, wanting to get rid of them, that this is essentially another attempt to uh, expel them from the country. And we should say that every time there have been polls about Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel, about whether they'd rather live in Israel or in a Palestinian state, they overwhelmingly choose to you know, say we want to live in Israel. Not you, know, you can interpret it in different ways, but they don't want to go anywhere and they don't want their citizenship stripped. Absolutely. But the survey that uh, Dalia and I mentioned a little while ago with B'Tselem, uh, this joint survey, we asked Palestinian, the Israel is going to elections soon. Should Palestinian factions participate if, if, if they have the opportunity? 36% said yes, Palestinian factions should participate 
uh, when we asked them whether they themselves in this case would participate and to whom they would vote, two-thirds said they won't, but one-third was willing to participate and to vote for Farah. Uh, some said they will vote for Islamists. And to the joint list, these were essentially the three groups that received the vote, which essentially means that despite what I said about no discussion about one state versus two states in the current campaigns that we see among Palestinians, there is a great deal of, of interest among Palestinians in this issue, the idea that Palestinians too would have equal rights, that the two-state solution is dead, as Dalia indicated earlier. That idea is certainly filtering down our surveys over the last 10, 15 years have indicated that more and more Palestinians come to the conclusion that the two-state solution is no longer feasible, that the reality on the ground is making it impossible to separate the two people, that eventually the only solution is going to be one-state solution, and Palestinians would want equal rights. One way to do that is to begin by participating in these elections. 36%, a lot of people, are basically saying we should participate now, even before we get to that state of equality, to participate in the upcoming Israeli elections. That is certainly a, a very, very serious uh, development. To be honest, we haven't asked about this before in previous Israeli elections, but I think this is a, a, a significant finding. Well, it sounds like both you and Dalia will have a lot of work on both sides of the Green Line with a lot of elections this year. Uh, both Palestinian and Israeli elections. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Shkaki, and I hope next time we can have this interview in person without any uh, coronavirus lockdowns or Which is the only or, or reason we're not there right now. Which is the one and only reason we're not in Ramallah with you today. Good to be with you. This jingle is important for the primary reason that it was just in my head all week. Maybe also because it was International Women's Day recently, and this jingle relates to the last time there was a serious challenge for the spot of prime minister, who was a woman. Tsipi Livni was on our third episode. We learned about her ideas now, but now I want to think about what she and her party, Kadima, meant for the Israeli political system. The jingle was from 2009 in her campaign as the leader of Kadima. The story of Kadima was Tippi Livni's personal story. Uh, the party was a breakaway from Likud. She was a political protege of Ariel Sharon, and she was running as the leader of a party that Israelis viewed as centrist. The right wing saw them as betraying the cause. The far right would eventually completely disavow Ariel Sharon after the disengagement from Gaza, or dismantling of settlements from Gaza, I should say. Tippi Livni is remembered by Israelis as left wing now because she led negotiations for a two-state solution under Netanyahu. At the same time, she held top ministerial and negotiating positions in right-wing governments under Netanyahu, and she was considered more hardline than him on certain items in the negotiations. Kadima was the top party in 2009, actually came in first in the election, but it wouldn't have been able to form a coalition. In fact, her inability to form a coalition was the reason we went to elections in 2009. And despite the fact that she was a very prominent rising star politician, the party collapsed shortly after that. And this made me think that, in general, centrist parties have a tough time in Israel. Kadima had two good cycles, 2006 and 2009. Blue and white spectacularly lasted even less than that. We don't even know if it's really going to cross the threshold, although it is crossing in most surveys. And the Likud breakaway from a couple of cycles ago, Moshe Kahlon, well, his party's no longer around. Uh, Gidon Sar's party, the current breakaway, 
whose candidates have argued that the party is center-right, may never really have its day in the sun. It's polling, as I mentioned before, very close to what Cajon was in its first run. I think the reason why there's always a center party, even if they don't last very long, is because Israelis seem to like to think of themselves as moderate. They say, I'm tired of this polarization. Let me vote for a centrist party. But when it comes down to it, the firm ideological positions of the right or the left represent the parties that remain standing. Centrist ideology sort of exists, but they try to have it both ways. They deal with some social economic issues and they sort of support a two-state solution, but they don't make it a very high priority. It sounds like maybe it's a contradiction, kind of like singing a patriotic national anthem, the song of the establishment, and interpreting it as a subversive rock song. These centrist parties don't really work. Well, I'll say something even more subversive. And Israel never had a left wing. And Israeli labor has always been a centrist party, at least until Michaeli came along. But that's an issue for another episode. And it's interesting that we've devoted episodes to the different political tribes and sectors. We seem to have missed out on the centrists, perhaps next week, that we're running out of time before the election. And that's time up for episode 11 of Election Overdose. Join us this time next week as the campaign enters its final straight. Meanwhile, you can hear us on Harris.com, your destination for all election coverage and much more, or listen to us on all popular podcast providers. I'm Anshul Pfeffer. With me was co-host Dalia Shendlin, our special guest, Dr. Halish Gaki. Join us from Ramallah. And behind the glass, we were produced by Yonatan Manevich. If you're listening to us in Israel, we hope you get a chance to get out there and enjoy the post-lockdown spring. Long may it last. And wherever you are, have an excellent and safe weekend. Shabbat shalom from all of us here at Haaretz. Thank you.